Well, then, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read there from the Gospel according to John, and chapter 4. And we can read at verse 35, where Christ says to his disciples, Do you not say there are still four months? And then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this The saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not laboured. Others have laboured, and you have entered into their labours. And especially concentrating that into the end of verse 37, where the Lord says, or even quotes, one sows and another reaps. Now for the past few weeks with the help of God we've been looking at this uh, fascinating and spiritually profound meeting between Christ and this woman from Samaria. She has been led by God to the well. Christ too has been led by God to the well. She is a thirsty soul and he carries God's gift of the water of life. And the encounter that takes place at the well is one, of course, that ends with the woman receiving that water of life and becoming a new creature, a new woman, because Christ has made her just that. And we saw last time how she left her full water pot of water and ran back to the town from which she came and immediately summoned everyone to come and meet the one that she had met, the one who told her everything in her life. Now, in some ways we could leave the matter there, but it's impossible really to leave it without considering this particular passage that seems to come as a kind of epilogue to all that, or maybe even an interlude between two things. These words about sowing and reaping and a white harvest, things that Christ speaks to the disciples just before the Samaritans begin to pour over the plains and to come to ask about eternal life. Now, you'll remember that the disciples had actually gone into the town of Sankar to buy food. And when they returned, they were surprised to find Christ talking uh, to a woman on her own and also to a Samaritan woman at that. And we saw that Christ was not slow to break cultural taboos if they were not scriptural ones, if they were not God-ordained ones. So he speaks... To this Samaritan woman. The disciples are of course afraid to ask 
why he is doing it or anything in connection with it at all. They know and love and reverence their master and they decide to remain quiet about it. But there's no doubt that they must have been aware of a huge change in our Lord's appearance. The Greek language tells us that the Lord came to the well in an exhausted state and that he sat beside the well thus or in exhaustion. But when they come back with the food and the refreshments, they find that the Lord's appearance has changed. Far from being slumped at the well, he is now like a man renewed and refreshed. And of course, renewed and refreshed is what he was. Because as he says himself, his meat and his drink is to do the will of him who sent him. In other words, meeting with this woman who was thirsting in her soul for the gift that God had put in his hands to give to her was life for him. Especially when he would meet the coldness and the hardness of an unbelieving people who didn't desire these things to find a poor, needy, thirsty soul that was interested in eternal life and being able to give such a person that eternal life was to him like a drink of cold water. I think I said last time, or maybe the time before that, that there are two thirsts being met here. Two people are drinking. The woman at the well is drinking of eternal life and Christ himself is drinking too. For him to give is to receive. And of course it was Jesus himself who taught us that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. In a way it's similar to what I was saying in the morning when I was talking about uh, bearing each other's burdens. It's um, more blessed to receive someone else's burden than to have your own burden uh, relieved. And uh, very often I took the example of loneliness. We can be lonely ourselves and perhaps the real cause of that is that we are not helping someone else in their loneliness. Now similar things are true here. Maybe you are spiritually dehydrated yourself. But perhaps one thing that might give you a drink is you giving someone else a drink. On you go and speak the gospel yourself to a weary soul and you may find that in giving that water of life that you receive it in turn because it always is more blessed to give than it is to receive or to put that another way you will sometimes find that you receive when you give in the giving you receive and giving here the Lord received now <clears throat> when the Lord speaks about having food to eat that you don't know of. The disciples are, as usual, quick to think on the earthly level and slow to think on the spiritual level. They ask, has anyone brought him food? We can almost smile at such naivety, but at the same time, we're all the same. Uh, we tend to be slow to pick up on spiritual realities. The Lord, of course, rebukes them, but he rebukes them as he always does with such patience and with tenderness. I mean, we touched on that in the morning. The Lord is meek and lowly of heart. And there is something tender and gracious 
in the way that he deals with us as a a people, just correcting our deficiencies, our false understandings, and that's the way that he deals with the disciples here. There is such grace on it. He lifts up their thoughts beyond the food, and he lifts them up to think of a spiritual reality that's all around them. And that spiritual reality is a a spiritual harvest that is actually in front of them on the fertile plains around about Sychar and near the well. Not an ordinary harvest, but a spiritual one. It's obviously not an ordinary harvest because the Lord speaks about four months yet to go before the harvest comes. But he says to them, don't say that and don't think that. They were probably speaking about that fact as they were making the way to the Lord. The Lord says, don't look at such things. I want you, he says, right now to lift up your eyes on these fertile plains around you. What do you see? Well, of course, at that point, they were beginning to see the men and the women streaming towards them from the city of Sychar. That, says the Lord, is a fertile harvest. That's a harvest of the best kind. That's an abundant food for your souls and for mine. Sinners seeking a saviour. They are coming to me and the gospel that I will give them is a gospel that you will give them too. Because you will share the work of the proclamation of the gospel with me. And as you do that, and as I do that, they, like the woman, will receive the water of life and will taste that God is good and who trusts in him is blessed. So that is the harvest that the Lord draws their attention to. Of course the woman who draws them to it originally is the woman at the well. Come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? She says that from the standpoint of someone who has come to believe that it is actually the Christ. But that is the way in which she puts it. She stimulates their curiosity. She urges them to come and to seek for themselves. Now I mentioned last time that scriptures sometimes contain condensed narratives. And we're to understand things that went before or things that came after. It seems very plain later on from what the Samaritans say to the woman that she had actually told them much more than that. The scriptures actually tell us that many of the Samaritans of that city in verse 39 believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Now if you read that verse carefully, you'll see that it implies that she said more than come see a man who told me all that I ever did. She explained something of her encounter, what the Lord said to her about living water and uh, how she received that water herself, how he told her what her life had been like and how he also led her to think about God and the Jewish people and the Samaritan people worshipping in the temple of Jerusalem or worshipping at the temple in Samaria, worshipping God in spirit and in truth, that she told them these things. 
to stimulate them, to urge them, and to call them to come. I mean, just the words on their own, come and see a man who told me everything I did, could this be the Christ? You wouldn't think on their own that they're enough to make the men of a city just come out to meet a stranger, a Jewish stranger at a well. Obviously, this woman was changed. This, this woman was transformed. I mean, this woman went out to the well as a woman who was in her sixth relationship and obviously dissatisfied and unhappy with it. You'll remember she was going to the well at 12 noon because no one else would be there. She's lonely, something of an outcast. She comes back full of life, a new woman, full of joy. And it's no surprise that such a witness is effective. Is it really? I mean, is there any witness as effective for God as a man or a woman that comes fresh from the presence of God, having received a, a draft of the water of life? I mean, you can pile up books on apologetics or pile up books on any Christian discipline. None of them, in many ways, will be as effective as a man or a woman who has come from the presence of God, who has heard from God, and whose life has been transformed by the power of God. I'm sure you know such a witness yourself. Maybe God in his grace has given you one such person that you've met and known and has been like that. And just looking at this woman and listening to her was enough. Yes, we're going to the well to see such a man. You've met a Christian like that. It doesn't really matter to me if you've met people who claim to be Christians that are not like that. In a way, they don't really matter. What matters is the ones that you have met like that. Just like counterfeit notes don't really matter when there's a true note. And when you find a life that's changed, it's a summons to yourself to come and hear the Lord personally. And please don't let anything make you stop short of that. You need to personally speak to Christ. You need to personally have to do with the Lord himself in order that you might find peace for your soul. Well then, this place called Sychar, unknown to anybody, was ready for reaping. And who'd have guessed that? Honestly, in a way, if you had scoured the Holy Land from Dan in the north to Beersheba to the south, taking in the land as it existed those days under the control of Rome with the various provinces from Galilee, Judea and Samaria in the middle, one of the last places, one of the last towns you'd have thought was ready for reaping was Sychar in the middle of Samaria. How wrong we can be? I'll come to that in a sec. But they were ready to be introduced to Christ and brought into his kingdom. Now it's in connection with that that our Lord introduces the idea of the harvest. And he says essentially two things that I want to look at with you. First of all, our Lord says that in the work of salvation, one sows and another reaps. Sometimes you do actually reap what you sow yourself. But more often than not, one sows and another reaps. The second thing that he says is that both the sower and the reaper receive their reward. Both the sower and the reaper receive their reward. And in fact, they rejoice together. 
in receiving that reward. Now let's look at the sower and the reaper for a while. Let's look at their work and let's look at their reward. Now first of all their work. In many ways the work of the sower and the reaper spiritually is identical. Now I know that you can't cross that over into the natural figure because sowing and reaping are very different things. But the fact of the matter is that the sower and the reaper in the spiritual world are are doing essentially the same thing. They are communicating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm doing that tonight in an official capacity, having been set aside as a minister of the gospel to do so. You who are Christians will be doing it in an unofficial capacity, but nonetheless called to do so in your own station, in your own calling in life by the Lord. Sharing the gospel, bringing the good news, sowing or reaping as the Lord sees fit. Maybe you are the person who sows more or less the first seed in somebody's heart. A mother, you'll probably do that in your child's life. How precious is that? But maybe any of you may have the pleasure, the privilege of sowing the first seed in somebody's life. On the other hand, you may actually, by sharing the gospel, be the last link in the chain. It may be through your life and through your witness that somebody comes to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But essentially, that work was the same, whether you were sowing or reaping. We are sharing the word of God, which God calls us to do, the gospel of salvation, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great gospel it is. It's a gospel of life. It is a gospel of eternal life, as we've been seeing over the past few weeks. Usually, this work is described as sowing. But our Lord distinguishes it here into sowing and reaping. Because in some respects, the tasks can be seen differently. Let me first think with you for, example, uh, for a while about the sower. Now, the sower's distinctive task, I suppose, is to work with people who are not believers or even with Christians who are sleepy or backslidden. And to bring the word of God to them bristles with difficulties all the time. You've got to overcome resistance. You've got to break down prejudices. That's the kind of situation that we're in today, by the way, really, in this nation. You, you couldn't say that this nation taken as a whole is ripe for harvest. It's, it's a field that requires plowing and sowing, by and large. Now, we need to be careful in making that assessment, which I'll come back to in a while, but by and large, that's the situation. Prejudices. I mean, you may have plenty of them in your heart here tonight. Prejudices. Um, preconceptions about me or the message that I bring or the building in which we're found or the gathering that's around you. A thousand things. And the source call is to lay foundational truths and maybe proclaim difficult truths. Things that people will not really expect or anticipate or want. 
develop habits of thought and practice. Bringing the dry bones together into the skeleton of a man. Praying that God may at some time breathe life into these bodies so that they might live. And sometimes when the sower sows that kind of seed, the ground is so hard. You'll remember Christ's parable in connection with sowing gospel seed. He says that as you sow it, that seed can fall into a ground that is really quite different. You have soil that is actually baked hard because people are tramping over it all the time and it's essentially a path and the seed just sits on top of it. The birds of the air come and just take it away. That represents you, if you're here tonight, I hope not, and your heart is really, really hard. And the word has hardly just gone out when uh, Satan comes and just take it, takes it away. It's so easy to distract you from it. It's easy to do it. I mean, the slightest thought and the whole thing's gone. Other soils have so much thorn or thistle in them. Other soils are just so narrow, so shallow. A person listens to the word of God for a while and there's a little response for a moment but then the world presses back in and it's gone. It's different from the hard, hard ground because there was some response but it still didn't last. Friends, there were many servants of God who went out to sow in that kind of field. I think of Kidderminster where Richard Baxter was called to go as a preacher of the gospel. Richard Baxter's name from the 17th century is fragrant and famous, and it's rightly famous and fragrant. But when he went to Kidderminster, it was a hard, hard place. There was hardly anybody there who cared anything about God. The whole parish was completely worldly, given over to immorality and to drink and to swearing and to ignorance with no conception of the Lord's Day. By the time Richard Baxter had finished sowing, and with God's help, others coming to reap to the place was transformed and changed. In Scotland, we think of Simpron and Ettrick, where Thomas Boston went, where again there was nothing there. And he laboured and sowed. And so often he sowed, not seeing any response at all to the gospel that he preached and watered himself with his tears. Until in God's good time, that response came. I'm sure others had gone before the man too and never saw what Baxter saw. But that's the point. As we'll see, one sows and another reaps. But we simply sometimes don't see the fruit ourselves. We don't see the fruit ourselves. The sower might see people listening but not really attentive. The sower might see people interested, but that interest doesn't ripen into a commitment. The sower might see people convicted of sin, but that conviction doesn't ripen into conversion. I mean, it would be a wonderful thing if I saw yourselves listen and being attentive and being convicted of sin. But I would feel I hadn't seen what I desired to see until I saw you coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to come to him in faith and resting upon him for your salvation. Being new women like this woman 
and new men. That would be a wonderful thing to see. That's to reap. But this is to sow. And of course the danger for the sower is not pride, but a sense of despair and a sense of futility. There's a there's a strange passage in the Old Testament where Isaiah speaks of the Saviour coming. And he tells us that the Saviour says, I have laboured in vain and spent my strength for naught, for nothing. But yet my labour is with the Lord. My work is with him, he says. We mustn't stop that sentence halfway. Sometimes the Lord says things and we can't cut them in half. Not my will. Well, when he says, let this cup pass from me. What kind of prayer is that? Well, you've got to stick with the prayer. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. I have labored in vain and spent my strength for nothing. What kind of statement is that? Well, let him continue it. My work, my labor, nevertheless, my work and my labor is with the Lord. In other words, it appears for nothing. To all intents and appearances, there's nothing. But I leave it with the Lord. I have sown. And in God's gracious providence, the apostles could reap what the Lord Jesus Christ had sown. The reaper, the sower needs to remember that um, God's work can sometimes take a long, long time. Many of you will have heard of the Chinese bamboo tree. Uh, it's a famous tree now, I suppose, uh, because of how unusual it is. You, you just plant the seed and you water the seed for, I think, four years. I should have checked this, but I think it's four years. And what happens? Nothing. Or nothing appears to happen. Nothing happens on the surface of the ground for four solid years. In the fifth year, that tree can shoot up to anything like 60 feet high. In a year. In a year? Well, in a way, yes. In another way, in five years. Because without the four years watering, it just wouldn't have been there. Patience. 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 And the sower needs patience and faith. To believe that God's word doesn't return to him void, empty, as though it had no purpose to fulfill. Isaiah says, on the contrary, he describes the water cycle and he says the rain that comes down from heaven doesn't return to heaven. Of course, you'll notice that he knows that that's exactly what it does. That rain, he says, doesn't return to heaven without watering the earth. And then it returns. And that earth brings forth fruit. It could be thorns or thistles. Or good fruit. So he says it is with the word of God. When it comes forth out of his mouth. It doesn't go back to him void. It goes back to him. Because every preacher gives an account of it. And every time we testify to it. We give an account of it. It goes back to him. Never void. Never empty. It accomplishes exactly what God has appointed for it to accomplish. And we all need to remember that. That the word of God does do that when we share it and speak it. It doesn't go back to him void, vain, empty. So the sower needs to remember 
that there will be a reaper. The reaper's work, of course, is different. When the reaper comes, the difficult work, in a way, has been done. And even though the reaper still has to labour, he's very conscious that someone else has been there before. Others planted and others watered and God gave the increase and now he simply reaps. Paul plants, Paul is waters, God gives the growth and here's someone who reaps. Now, in his kindness, God usually appoints a bit of both for everybody. I don't think there's anyone who exclusively sows. And neither is there anyone who exclusively reaps. But sometimes, some people who sow just seem to have a plough and seed. They've even got to plough the ground and sow the seed. And it's very, very difficult. Now, the Lord's point here is not that the Lord's work requires sowers and reapers. You'll notice that's not really his point. But that the reaper mustn't forget the sower and the sower mustn't forget the reaper. Let the reaper remember the sower. If, if, the, if the sower's tendency was to despair, the reaper's tendency is obviously going to be pride. Must be a wonderful thing. I remember hearing a, a, an anecdote about uh, Charles Spurgeon once, who, of course, was remarkable for the reaping ministry that he had. Um, that was a man who was in the East End of London, in the midst of abject poverty, and 7,000 ordinary people would turn up to hear the gospel every single Lord's Day. And uh, it was reckoned to be the only church in London where you could find the Prime Minister Gladstone at the time sitting next to a maid. Uh, but that's the way the gospel is. The gospel levels us all. I, I, I actually made with my hands a levelling downside there. The gospel actually levels us up in that respect. It takes people who belong to the downhill and people who have nothing and raises them to the level of princes. But Spurgeon, somebody once said, seemed to have the great... A blessing of simply opening his mouth and someone was converted. There was a very strange example of that when he was preaching before the church was built. He was preaching in the in the Surrey, I think it was the Surrey Music Hall which could accommodate I think 20 odd thousand people. It was either that or the Crystal Palace. I can't remember which one it was on that occasion but he was simply testing the acoustics and by testing the acoustics he, he just shouted out Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And one of the workmen who was, who was working on the building heard these words and was convicted of sin. And after a, a period of time came to know the Lord, the sin bearer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember someone commenting on that to the effect that he, he was so blessed as a reaper that it, it almost didn't seem to matter when he opened his mouth that a soul just fell into his lap like a plum. Well, so it is. I mean, that can sometimes happen. And the great danger there is pride. And there's a warning here. Now, we may not pick it out right away, but there is a warning in this passage against pride. Christ is obviously checking the apostles even before they begin to meet the Samaritans. 
I'm sending you, he says, right now to reap that which you never sowed. Other people have sowed. You are going to enter into their labours. This isn't the only time the Lord checked pride. We read an example of it in Luke chapter 17. When the Lord sent 70 out in pairs, giving them power not just to preach but also to heal the sick and to cast out evil spirits. And you'll remember in the reading that they came back with joy, saying, the demon, this is unbelievable in effect, but the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, you would have expected that the Lord would share in that joy, and I'm sure at one level he did, but that's not the message he gave. The message the Lord gave was a different one. Behold, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is an astonishing um, instance of the consciousness of our Lord in connection with his pre-existent eternal state. Long ago, before the creation of the heavens and the earth, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is a reference to Lucifer, Satan, the chief angel, the greatest being that God had made, becoming, of course, proud himself, thinking that he was somehow a God himself, thinking that he needn't be dependent on his maker and on his creator. I suppose at one level we think that such an astonishing assertion of independence by a creature is an incredible thing. And it is an incredible thing. But are you any different if you assert your own independence and your own authority over the God who made you? It's no more incredible than that. But he did that. Jesus says, I saw it. I saw it. I saw a being, wonderful in holiness, fall into the degradation of sin and ruin. So, he says, don't rejoice that the devils are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't make a habit of glory in what you've accomplished, in case it imperceptibly becomes what you've accomplished. Yes, I know that the disciples said, they are subject in your name. Yes, they said that. But how long would the in your name stay there? That's, that's the danger. How long would in your name stay there? doesn't seem to take long for a person just to transition quickly into the demons are subject to us. Don't rejoice in that, the Lord says. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What does he mean by that? Don't rejoice in what you did, but rejoice in what's been done for you. I wrote your names in heaven long ago. You're converted because of my electing grace. You're converted because of my sovereign power, because of the Holy Spirit of God working in your lives. Let that be your joy and rejoice. A subtle warning against pride right at the beginning of their ministry. And here we effectively have the same thing. In verse 38, I am sending you to reap here in Sychar 
that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Now, who is the Lord referring to? Who labored in Sychar? That's actually a difficult question to answer. Not every question is easy to answer by any means. Is he referring to himself? Did he sow in Sychar? No. The Lord's only ministry ministry had only just begun, and he had not been in Samaria preaching the word. Is it a reference to the Holy Spirit? No. Others, he says, have labored. That's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Is it a reference to the woman? Well, maybe, but again, he says others. He doesn't say the woman that you saw at the well. Who is he speaking about? Well, I think, friends, we can take both legitimately both a short and long-term view of that. Short-term, I feel fairly sure that he's referring to his predecessor whom he loved so much, John the Baptist. They came to his ministry of repentance from the north, south, east and the west. And Samaritans were touched with it by it, just like other people were touched by it. And John had his disciples and they went out and they preached repentance. They preached for people to get ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the coming of the Spirit of God, for a new work in the land. And that didn't fall on deaf ears. It's quite possible that they thought it fell on deaf ears. Oh, there's maybe no response in Sychar. Ah, but there was a response in Sychar. Or maybe you can take a longer-term view. Maybe you can go back even hundreds of years. Now, that may sound strange. Could you say that there was a sowing in Sychar hundreds of years ago that was yielding fruit? This is where Elijah labored as a prophet. This is where Elisha, his successor, labored as a prophet. Is it possible that their words were preserved even in the midst of the ruin and the false religions and everything that abounded, that it was just preserved, and that that work was used by God's seed that had been sown many years ago was used by God to prepare a people for himself? Why not? I think sometimes that amongst ourselves, it's perhaps the prayers of those who have gone before us rather than ours that might stir us yet. Maybe if we ourselves are stirred to prayer, it's because others were stirred to prayer before us. Maybe the seed that will awaken people in this part of the world is seed that was preached some time ago. There are sermons available for people to hear. Maybe it's the hearing of these things. Books written long ago, republished and rediscovered. That will be the means that God uses to prepare a people for himself. God works in ways that are beyond us. And for him a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. It's quite possible these people were stirred by words and prayers spoken a long, long time before they appeared on the face of this earth. Let the reaper remember that someone else sowed and I think, you know, it's, it's always it's useful in lots of ways to remember that you'll never be first in the scene, really. Well, I, I, 
Never say never. I, I gave the example of, a, of a mother who will be first on the scene with her child. But ordinarily, when you share the gospel, let me just say it's highly likely you'll be first on the scene. There'll be someone there before you. Someone there before you. And in God's likely providence, there'll be someone there after you too. And that's actually quite important to remember in a lot of ways. I mean, let me just say this, that uh, sometimes when you witness for Christ, you, you're very concerned about you know, how, how much you're going to present of the gospel. I mean, I have that feeling myself, to be quite honest. I, I feel I have to present a whole package and it's got to be consistent from beginning to end and there's got to be no defect in it and so on and so on. But that's not the way it works. That's, a lot of that's just pride, really. That's all it is. Just, just put a little seed in there. Put a little seed in there. You have no idea what's gone before and you have no idea what's coming after. If, if your word is a word in season, that's what matters. It doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, there are a couple of instances in the Bible of a, of a witness to Christ that was actually poor, slightly defective, but was nonetheless blessed. Uh, it's good to bear in mind there are many links in a chain when someone's coming to the Lord. And just be glad to be one of them. You might not be the final one or the first one. Just any link in a chain will do. There are always sores when there are reapers. And uh, I think in a family too, it's kind of worth remembering that as well. When someone comes to a faith, maybe someone might come to faith in a meeting like this or in another kind of meeting. But, and you would think, well, well, that's what brought the person to faith. But what about their father and mother who prayed for them night by night, morning by morning, week by week by week, month by month and year by year? What about a grandfather or a grandmother who prayed for them? How easily they can be forgotten. How easily the glory attaches to the reaper when the sword sowed. Easily forgotten. And so... Reaper remember sower, but let the sower also remember the reaper. Um, they're both going to rejoice together. That's what the Lord says. Verse 36 He who reaps receives wages. Well, that's obvious. We'd expect that. And he gathers fruit for eternal life, so that both he who sows and he who reaps will rejoice together. When does the reaper's joy begin? Well, as soon as he sees a soul coming to the Lord. I mean, if, if you are privileged to bring the word to somebody that took them to the Savior, your joy begins right away. When does the sower's joy begin? Well, I would say that source joy begins at the same time, even if they have gone and passed into glory. In Revelation 5, which we looked at in the prayer meeting recently, we saw the souls under the altar in heaven, waiting for something to pass. Remember that? Souls in heaven waiting for something. Revelation 5. I'm sure there are souls in heaven who sowed and they know that that seed is going to bear fruit. 
And when that seed bears fruit, they rejoice in glory when it does bear fruit. The word of God tells us that when a sinner comes to faith, there is joy in heaven. The angels rejoice in heaven. God rejoices in heaven. The church rejoices in heaven. It would be a strange thing if the angels rejoiced when they have less interest in it. The church has far more interest in her own flesh and blood. Of course they rejoice in heaven. Uh, some question, I'm not, I'm not going to stay on this, but I think it's worth mentioning, but some question whether those who have gone to glory do see the fruit of their labours here on the earth. But I feel about this question like I feel about another question. Why do you ask that question? Why would we even ask that question? The other question that I feel that about is, will we know each other in heaven? I always feel like saying, who thought of asking such a question? Who thought of asking it? In whose mind did the idea arise that the family of God would not recognise each other in heaven? What a strange notion that actually is when you think about it. That brothers and sisters don't recognise each other in heaven. Strange. Well, this is just as strange. Suppose you're a father who, who wept and prayed over sons and daughters for 40 years of your life and saw none of them come to faith. And suppose you go to glory and suppose they all come to faith. Are we really supposed to believe that the angels in heaven rejoice and that person remains in ignorance of it? How strange a thought to think. Of course, friends, they know. Of course they know. And that's why when the, the reaper rejoices, so does the one who sowed. We might not, let's say if I reap, I might not have a clue who sowed there first. It's important for me to remember that somebody did. But I might have no clue who did. Ah, but I can be sure that he or she is rejoicing in heaven. I can be absolutely sure of that. And it's a wonderful thing to realise it. I want to close by just giving us a few imperatives. First of all, be vigilant. Be on the lookout for a harvest. I said right at the beginning or near the beginning that our country, the United Kingdom, in fact the West, is like ground that needs ploughing and so not, not right for harvest at all. But we've got to be careful. You might have said that Samaria was like that, but lo and behold, there was Sychar and wasn't like that. So you've got to be vigilant around you that there are souls in whom God has been working. And they are not necessarily ones that you might expect. And it's so important to bear that in mind. We put people easily into categories and you may be completely and utterly wrong. And the only way... Uh, to guard yourself against that is to be willing to share the gospel with anybody. And only when it's resisted do you leave it alone. Otherwise, otherwise assume. Assume a harvest. Just be vigilant. The second imperative is just to be diligent. 
I think everybody should have a bag of seed and a sickle to reap. If we don't go out with the word of God, friend, then how can we ever either sow or reap? I mean, if if our lips are sealed and we cease to witness, and if, if we don't bring the gospel to our workplace or in our family and into the street and into the shop, into the recreation field, then how will you ever sow or reap? Take a bag of seed and take a sickle wherever you go. The third thing is, be hopeful. And I'm saying that because the Bible speaks of a day when the ground will be so good and the produce so fruitful that the ploughman will overtake the reaper. So at the very time at which um, fruit is being reaped, other people are actually ploughing. The whole thing's going so fast. The fertility so great, the land so productive, the soil, the earth shall yield her fruit, our God shall blessing send. The wonderful thing about the Psalms is that they're so optimistic, not in this gushy, syrupy, sentimental way which so many songs are, but they are so doctrinally and so truthfully optimistic. The earth, her fruit shall yield. Our God shall blessing send. God shall us bless. And men shall him fear unto earth's utmost end. When you have promises like that, I mean, let's be out and vigilant with expectation and with hope. And last of all, be prayerful. And I say prayerful because, well, Everything's connected with prayer, of course, but I mean this in a particularly special way. The bulk, the bulk of sowing and reaping probably falls to those who are called to do it in a particular way to ministers of the gospel. Our Lord says so, says so much in the passage that we read. When he sent out the 70, he said the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful here, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labourers into his vineyard. Now, the labourers there are a reference, not to the ordinary Christian doing this work, which ordinary Christians do in their calling. It's a reference to those full-time preaching disciples that the Lord was sending into the world. He always has done, under the old covenant and under the new covenant. Pray that the Lord would raise them and send them. Now we live, I mean the centre of Christianity has now gravitated away from the West. Everybody knows that. The centre of Christendom now in the 22nd century is in the Far East and indeed in Africa. And indeed in the South of America. It's no longer in the West. We've sold our heritage for a mess of pottage. But it will return. One day it will return. And what we need to pray for, perhaps first and foremost is that God would raise up proclaimers of the word whom he has sent and whom he has equipped. Pray, he says to the church, the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into that harvest. For two days, Jesus and the disciples (coughs) stayed in this village of Sychar, teaching them the word of God all because of this encounter between the Lord and the woman of Samaria. It's from Little Acorns 
that oaks grow. We always need to remember that in the kingdom of God. Next time we come across the Lord, he's moving north again into Galilee, where the reception is very different. May the Lord bless his word. Let us stand to pray. O Lord, grant us, whether we sow or reap, to do so in expectation and in faith, to do so with diligence. My soul, wait thou with expectation upon thy God alone. On him dependeth all my hope and expectation. We ask, Lord, your blessing to accompany the word as it was proclaimed on this Sabbath day, the first day of the week, a reminder to us that the Lord whom we serve, whom we worship, and whom we love, is the risen Lord, to whom belongs all power in heaven and upon the earth. Do good to the souls of men and women. Seek out and save, we pray, those who are lost and perishing, Impart to them the water of life. In our precious Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 126. The psalm is written by people in a bit of a dry time who are remembering a better time. And they're encouraging themselves, really, and God is encouraging them to believe that the seed that they're sowing in this dry time is actually going to be fruitful. So, a reflection again on the past, when Zion's bondage God turned back as men that dreamed were we. This is when they came back from the captivity, really fooled. Then filled with laughter was our tongue, mouth our tongue with melody. They were singing to the Lord. The world noticed it among the heathen. They said, the Lord great things for them hath wrought. That's what the heathen said. And they echoed it back. Yes, they said, the Lord hath done great things for us, whence joy to us is brought. And now, Lord, recall our bondage like streams of water in the south. And here's the confidence. Those who sow in tears... A reaping time of joy and joy they shall. That man who bearing precious seed in going forth doth mourn, he doubtless bringing back his sheaves, rejoicing shall return. The great theologian John Calvin uh, said that he he thought himself that every Christian would be surprised at the harvest they had reaped from the seed that they had sowed. Let's stand to sing the whole song. When Zion's Amen. Yeah.